Let's pray together this morning. Bow your heads with me. Oh Lord, you have searched us. You know us. You know when we sit down, when we rise up. You discern our thoughts from afar. You search out our path and our lying down. You're acquainted with all our ways. Before a word is on our tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. We cannot attain it. This morning, Lord, by the power of your Spirit at work in your word, reminding us of the grace of the gospel, we pray, search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen. An important question this morning that we've looked at together throughout Revelation intermittently and that we look at together again. It becomes, you know, on the forefront of our minds as we open this text together again is this, okay? To whom do you belong? To whom do you belong, all right? So another way that we've phrased this in the past, if you remember, is like, where do we give our allegiance? To whom do we give our allegiance? And this question in so many ways now comes to the forefront as this contrast between the people of God and the surrounding world, between Babylon, the culture of the world, and the new Jerusalem, the city of God, this contrast that, that really we've seen throughout Revelation but, but it, it moved to the front burner in chapter 17. And I said it's going to be really a dominating contrast through the rest of the book. Now it, it continues on in our text. I'm so thankful for Paul Burr, the good work uh, that he did for us last week in the text, showing us more of this contrast. As we saw together, if you remember, that the world laments and grieves over Babylon's demise. What's Babylon? Well, if you were here a couple weeks ago... In chapter 17, so Babylon is this wicked, broken, perverse world order. And so when Babylon is finally toppled, when the culture, the world order that stands against the Lord, that does not want him, does not know him, want him, or desire him, but very much wants the opposite of him, wants control of their own lives, wants its own say-so, very much hates him, therefore hates those who follow him. This world order that chapter 18 describes as a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for everything unclean and detestable. This world order that not only hates God, but wants to lead everything under its auspice, everything in its influence, wants to lead it to reject God. It wants to lead it to worship and serve things other than God, things that will in the end destroy them. When that system finally topples, and it will, when it finally falls, and it will, when the Lord finally calls it to judgment, and it receives what it deserves, and it will, what does the world do? How does the world respond to that? It laments. Standing far off in fear of Babylon's torment, they cry out in chapter 18, do you remember? Alas, alas, you great city, Babylon, the merchants of the earth weep, they mourn for her. Why? Because the good old days of getting whatever they wanted, they're gone. 
good old days of all kinds of earthly comforts and passions that brought them what they believed to be their central joy in a very, in the end, short and futile moment. It's come to an end. Alas, alas, for the great city. Here's a verse we'll come back to. Great city was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, jewels, and pearls. In a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. It's been laid waste. Even though it was the very things that they served and worshipped that ended up destroying them, the world now laments at the loss of it. It's like an addict lamenting and grieving over the loss of their stash. They can't imagine anything different. They lamented this world that destroyed them. But how do the people of God respond to the destruction of Babylon? How do the heavens respond? Well, that's where the end of chapter 18 and now the beginning of chapter 19 shifts our focus. And whenever I come to the text of Revelation, I can't help it. Come to the end, starting in 17 into 18, 19, 20, right? I always start to think of um, one particular story that just recurringly comes to mind. I, I think of the, the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. In the final battle of that trilogy, in which Mordor finally falls. I've been waiting for a long time to talk about this. Um, and, and I will in weeks ahead. I'm going to restrain myself a bit this morning. But that, this, listen, this is exactly what Tolkien would have wanted. Okay? Um, would have wanted us to think of Revelation 17 through 20 when reading that scene of the final battle, when watching the end of the movie, when, when listening to the end of the story, right? And, and, and so, hang on, there are two, why? Well, there are two kinds of movies we could think of, two kinds of books we could think of, two kinds of stories. One is, is that, it's that classic scene of victory in which the antagonist, the villain, finally gets what's coming to them, finally get what they deserved. And the protagonist is finally vindicated. Their victims are finally vindicated. If you watch any film, listen, right? We all know. We don't, we, we don't like when the, the villain wins. It's not a very tidy story. We tend to leave a movie or, 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 or close a book in disappointment when the villain is victorious. And so as, as we watch any film, the worse the villain is throughout the story, the more wicked they are, the more pain they inflict on the innocent, and especially on the protagonist whom we've come to care about. The better they get at kind of evading judgment too, like there'll be a scene in a movie or a TV series where it's like the villain is just this close to being finally caught and brought to justice and he just barely evades it. And you're like, ooh, I can't wait for the moment, right? The more that happens, the more those who are watching, the audience at home, sits on the edge of their seats with great anticipation of this villain's final, eventual demise, their final complete fall and comeuppance. And so even from within the story itself as we watch, like think about the story itself. We watch the Lord of the Rings. And as the ring of power is finally in the most unlikeliest of ways imaginable, cast into the fires of Mount Doom, what that inevitably means for the inhabitants of the great city of Mordor is judgment and death. All of the fallen men and wicked creatures of Mordor are sucked into the chasm of fire where the smoke of their torment goes up. What does this remind us of? And how do the people of the Western world in the story itself, respond? How do the men of the West who are watching this happen respond? What are the looks 
on the faces of those whose villages were slaughtered by Mordor, who had stood against them rather than joining with them. What's the expression? Well, it's one of um, tears of joy and exhaustion and relief, deep relief, because the constraints of Mordor is gone. They raise their swords, and through those tears they shout praise to the one who defeated it. That, that's what happens at the end of Lord of the Rings. They rejoice at the demise of Mordor. And so, so do all of us, right? So do all of us who watch the movie or read the book. We're, we're rejoicing with them. But, but um, think of a second kind of movie, book, story, in which at the end of the story, the antagonist actually surprisingly wins. Have you ever seen one of these? I mean, there are quite a few out there. I won't say the names of them in case you stumble upon them. It's better to be surprised. But the plot of one of the stories that I saw more recently is that of a cruel and brutal group of people, men and women, okay, throughout the story, who uh, secretly try to undermine what is good in the world around them by planting bombs and chaos, destruction and death in their wake. And at the end of the movie, right when you think they're about to be exposed, right when the good guy is about to win, you come to find that they've actually used the protagonist of the story for their own agenda. That what he thought was good was actually delivering the bomb unintentionally for them right where they wanted it, and, and the bad guy wins. The, the antagonist is victorious. How do they react in the end of the m- movie when they win? Mocking, smug, evil smiles break out upon their faces as they begin to plan the next wave of evil. They're not done yet. They're about to wreak, continue their, their havoc elsewhere. And the audience at home is left stunned, right? Because evil won out. Like, we don't like that, right? There's this like real shock and despair that evil's won out at the end of the film. I, I bring up these two kinds of stories, and right, we, we see that trope in books and in movies. I bring it up because at, the, at the front because I want us to imagine a world in reverse, right? So I want us to imagine a world in which we watch the end of The Lord of the Rings, which we'll talk more about in weeks ahead, and we shake our heads at it. And we cry out in anger against the author. We read the book and we cry out in anger at the author of the story because of the cruelty he unleashed against the people of Mordor. We lament the destruction of Mordor, or we join with the antagonists who are in victory. We join them in their smug and mocking smiles. We, we find great great uh, comfort, great joy, at great pleasure, is probably a better word, in the victory of, the e- of evil, rather than being shocked by the victory of evil, rather than disliking it. And whether we like it or not, listen, um, this, is, this is how the world's responding to the destruction of Babylon in chapter 18. This is how the world responds. This is how those who don't know Christ respond to the destruction of Babylon. They lament at its destruction Why? Because they revel in its evil. They join, they participate, they find great pleasure. The people of the world revel in the evil of the world order that stands against the Lord. And and also, whether we like it or not, we live in a Western world in which now we read the biblical text through that kind of lens rather than one associated with the goodness and justice of the judgment of God. Right? We've been steeped in our culture for so long that I think we read these texts and no longer do we associate it with just retribution, but only with the, the pain of suffering. And we'll talk more about that this morning. I think 
my fear is we can pretty easily find our hearts compelled in chapter 18, right, to, to root for the wicked, to join with the wicked and ask God, how could he do such a thing to voice responses to Revelation that sound more like the world in 18 than the people of God in 19? We can find our hearts compelled to read about the destruction of Babylon and lament along with the wicked, right? But when we look into the scriptures, what we find is that while the world laments, the people of God have a different response. And we'll see it in a moment. And for good reason. The purpose for this contrast, right, is for us, this contrast between God's people, people of the world that we see throughout Revelation. You either have God's mark or you have Satan's mark. Everyone has a mark. You're either sealed by the Lord or you have Satan's mark. Who do you follow? Whose wrath would you rather face? Whose acceptance would you rather have, right? Would you rather face the wrath of culture or the wrath of God? Would you rather have the acceptance of culture or the acceptance of God? You're going to face some kind of wrath. You're going to receive some kind of acceptance. Where do you look? That's, this is the, the point that Revelation holds out to us again and again. And the purpose for this contrast is for us to do some introspection. Like we read about at the front end in the Psalms in our prayer. To ask us what's in our hearts. Like to whom do we belong? Do we belong to those who lament over the destruction of Babylon? Just throw our hands up at the one who delivers the judgment and say, how dare you? Stand in judgment over his judgment. Or do we belong to the one who judges them? Right? This, is, this is the question the text raises for us. And, and we see three continued contrasts in the text that I, I believe really draws out this introspection that puts us in this place where we're confronted with what's in our heart. Okay, so, so three continued contrasts. First, if you're taking notes, number one, we've already looked at half of it. While the world laments in Babylon's destruction, chapter 18, we saw it last week, the people of God rejoice. They rejoice in the judgments of God. While the world laments in Babylon's destruction, this is first contrast, the people of God rejoice. So let's back up again and start in chapter 18, just so that we can see the contrast in all of its clarity, right? Starting in verse 19, it says, And they, this is the world, seafarers, merchants, those who are a part of this world order, this evil world order, they, what happened when the world order was destroyed? They threw dust on their heads and wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been Laid waste, right? So throughout 18, we saw it last week. What do you see? You see a repeated refrain, right? There's almost like a repeated song. It's a song of lament. It's a refrain of lament. And the refrain is repeated in 18, alas, 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 alas. And now, come to verse 20, and we see something of a shift, right? A shift of voice. Now, it's, it's probably the same voice, I think. Whether this is the voice of the seafarers, merchants, people of the world continuing, saying that the obvious response of the people of God should be rejoicing, or this is a different voice altogether, here we see, verse 20, what does it say? Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone, threw it down to the sea, saying, So Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Now skip down to the second half of verse 23. 
for your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. Okay, listen. Listen to this. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. Why? For God has given judgment for you against her. In what sense, we need to ask, is this judgment against Babylon, this judgment against the culture, in what sense is that actually for the people of God? Like, why should the saints and apostles and prophets rejoice over her destruction? Well, look at verse 24. In her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints, all who have been slain on earth. Imagine having... It's a tough, tough thing to, to imagine, right? But these are the kinds of images we need to evoke in order to really understand the text, okay? Imagine having a tormentor day and night. Someone who relentlessly and wickedly demands that you either join them in their very real bloody torment of others, join them in that, find delight and pleasure in that, or become tormented by him as he slays you and all the people around you who decide to stand against him. He keeps you locked up, he torments you day and night, tortures you, and then finally, one who has the power to destroy him does it so that you can be free of your tormentor. You can be free of the chains that shackled you in. You can have salvation and vindication in that judgment, right? Listen, that's the picture that we see here in this text. Babylon has slain the people of God. The blood of the prophets and apostles and saints is within her. She's been feeding on them. That's gruesome language. But it's the picture that's given us. And so chapter 18 ends with this striking statement. I actually think the statement comes from the people of the world who acknowledge that the appropriateness, it's not their response. It's not going to ever be the response of the people of the world. For all eternity, it won't be their response. But they, but they acknowledge at least that it will be the appropriate response for God's people to be rejoicing because God has delivered them. And, and the angel tells them, Tell, tells us why. This mighty angel tells us why it's the appropriate response. Right? Why? Because this world system is actually that wicked. That's what the text says. It's actually that wicked. And that brings us to the first few verses in chapter 19 in which we see this contrast fleshed out a bit more starting in verse 1. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. That word corrupted probably has a dual meaning, both corrupt and destroy. Okay, Corrupted the earth, destroyed the earth with her immorality, and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Okay, so, so do, you, do you see the contrast? So we've read, I think, enough for sure last week as Paul rang the bell for us. And this week, as we see, we've already read enough of the contrast, right? Do you see it? We move from the repetitive statements of chapter 18, this refrain, this chorus of lament, 
Alas, 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 alas. This repetitive cryings out of lament from the world to now a repetitive refrain, repetitive song of hallelujahs. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Cryings out of rejoicing. Right? Here in chapter 19. Some themes that we're going to see in the next contrast start to come into focus. They start to emerge here. Because the God who brought judgment is praised. Why? For his salvation and glory and power. He is the one who had the power over Satan and the world system to bring judgment and to thereby rescue God's people. And so God's people rejoice. We, we looked at this theme a couple of weeks ago by asking, do you remember the same question that Abraham asked in Genesis 18? Will not the judge of the earth do what is just? And just as that was answered with a resounding yes, even in the midst of judgment on the world system in Sodom and Gomorrah, that, those great cities, it's answered with a resounding yes. So now it's answered with a resounding yes of a judgment of the great city of Babylon. God's people proclaim in verse 2, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. It's another reminder of what we just read at the end of chapter 18, that this is for the good of God's people. Now listen, as an aside, this use of the word avenge is avenged, Right, avenged on her the blood of his servants. That, that term avenge, we can have issues with that. And I can understand why because of the way that we tend to think of it in our English language, right? Avengers, okay? Um, it's not some bloodthirsty or unrestrained vengeance. It's not angry, right? Um, that's not the context, nor is it the picture actually of God's people throughout Revelation. It's not what we actually see when we read all of the book. In fact, God's people have continued to proclaim a gospel through tears to the world around them, rejoicing when people are saved, demonstrating a love in the churches of God that flows out of the gospel, being instructed in patience. Do you remember this? There's a theme of patience so that people have the opportunity to repent. Patience with them. Declaring that God is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Instead, what we find here, it's not, it's not a bloodthirsty kind of vengeance. Instead, it's simply a just punishment for those who have done great wickedness and murdered the people of God. To be fair, that's what we find. And, and the praise here, in the end, is that these people are never returning. That's what we see in verse 3. That the smoke will go, goes up forever, right? The praise here, in the end, is it's It's final. It's eternal. God's people will never have to be subject to suffering and death for their belief in him ever again. Hallelujah. The smoke of her goes up forever and ever. It's finally over. It's permanent and irreversible. Right? And this judgment of God stirs praise, not only from this great multitude. So when we read about this great multitude, it's the same great multitude that we saw in chapter 7 when, we, when, when John hears the 144,000. 12 times 12 times 1,000. Times so this is the, the, people of, the complete people of God. Right? 144,000. He hears them. He looks, turns. What does he see? The great multitude. We see that multitude here rejoicing as well. And as they praise, it's not just this multitude that praises, but those um, also of the 24 elders, the four living creatures, 
the mightiest of angels, everyone, small and great, who fear him, they praise the Lord on account of this. So, here's what we see. While the world laments in Babylon's destruction, the people of God rejoice. First of three contrasts in this text meant to draw out introspection surrounding the question, to whom do you belong? To whom do you belong? So how does this contrast, this first one, draw out this kind of introspection? And I, I would say the reason is because fundamentally it confronts us repeatedly with the question, do you trust him? People of God, do you trust your Lord? Do you trust God? That is to say, do you grieve over the idea of an eternity without the wicked because that means the wicked will be judged and nobody deserves judgment and God's wrong about this? Or do you trust God and praise him that he will stamp out wickedness for all eternity, that his judgments are right and good because he is right and good? Do you trust him? In his, in his lectures in Revelation, D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, it's important, therefore, in this connection, to think of judgment and its horrific finality, not primarily in terms of the suffering that it inflicts, but in terms of the just retribution that it represents. Do you hear that? It's important. It's important to think of judgment in its horrific finality, not primarily in terms of the suffering that it inflicts, but in terms of the just retribution that it represents. He continues, many contemporary objections to hell have their basis in this. We don't like to hear that people suffer. And the assumption is that it's the suffering of the innocent or that it's somehow not fair. But the assumption, assumption throughout these passages is this. God is to be praised even in judgment precisely because it will be seen to be just. That is to say, when the people of God view this, in the end, when, when the people of God see God pour judgment out upon the world, our hearts will not be conflicted. Won't, nobody will see this and think, oh, I, I'm having some issues with this. No, the, the response here in glory is praise. This is something we've talked about already. It shows up even stronger in this text. It'll gain more strength if you can believe it as the book continues. But God's people will not see judgment and think it horrendous. Quite the opposite. They won't have to work up a certain amount of trust when they see God do this in the end. Their heart's inclination will be to rejoice. But it's important to remember something. It's important to mention at this point that while in the future there, there will be rejoicing from the people of God in judgment, that is not the case right now. So Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon on Revelation 18 that's quite stirring and helpful. 18 and 19 in his own uh, work in the text. And I think he put it rightly when he suggested that, listen, uh, in this life we will grieve. In this life we will grieve to see our friends and neighbors, family members, co-workers reject Christ. In this li life, we do everything we can. You better believe we do everything we can to share the gospel with those who do not believe, with those who are a part of this world order, that they might believe and turn to him. These passages are not an excuse for Christians to, to start to rejoice at the bloodshed of the wicked in this life. Because that's counter to the gospel. We do not rejoice at the bloodshed of the wicked. We do not rejoice in their, in their uh, bloodshed now because our heart's desire is for them to know Christ and love him rather than choosing other things that actually eat them alive. In this life we grieve. But here's a direct quote from Edwards, and I think it's right, and I think it hits at what the text is telling us. He writes, But when the saints in glory shall see the wrath of God, 
executed on ungodly men, it will be no occasion of grief to them, but of rejoicing. In other words, in glory, it will be no occasion of grief to the people of God that wickedness has been stamped out. Like you're not going to miss wickedness. Remember, those who will be in hell choose it. They're not in hell repentant. They're not there repentant, wishing they could have a second chance, regretting not being with Christ, longing to be with him and seeing him as good. And oh, I just wish I could, I long to be with my Savior. I long to be with Jesus, but I'm stuck here in hell. No. What have we seen throughout Revelation about the response of the people of God? It's that even as the mountains fall down upon them, they do not want to be in the presence of the Lamb. Even when the most evil and even even when the most evil uh, powers and source, sources come upon them that fill them with with evil, even when it eats them alive, even even with, when demons are eating them alive, they still do not repent. And even when God's judgment is poured out upon them, as the bowls are poured out, they still are not repentant. No, they they remain unrepentantly wicked. So in eternity, in the new heaven and the new earth. As God's people enjoy glory forever, it will be no occasion of grief to them that the wrath of God was executed on, 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 the, on wickedness for all eternity so that for all eternity we could be without wickedness and perversion and cruelty and selfishness and suffering. And this idea that God's judgment of the wicked is inextricably bound up with his salvation of his people, pouring out his wrath so that his people could have a new heaven and new earth for all eternity, that's the idea that now brings us to our second contrast real quickly. The world order, number two, now. So the people of the world lament at the destruction of Babylon. God's people rejoice in his judgments. Number two, now, the world order is inevitably destroyed. God's people are mercifully saved. The world order is inevitably destroyed. God's people are mercifully saved. Verses six through eight, then I heard what seems to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, See it again, another hallelujah refrain. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Let's stop there for a moment. Here we're introduced to the bridegroom. We're introduced to salvation himself. The one who's come to save. The very salvation that's held out to people. The great multitude cries out, hallelujah. What's the occasion for the hallelujah? The marriage of the lamb has come. And this is where, man, here we really see it. Here's where we see how symbolism in apocalyptic literature is meant to be read. If we read it, if we have this hyper-literalistic framework that we put this through, we make a mess of the direct meaning of the text because we see this, all these metaphors to the point where metaphor gets mixed. Listen, listen. The bridegroom is the lamb. A lamb is the bridegroom, right? Like, this is a little bit of a mixed metaphor, right? If we, if we, if we interpret this a little bit over-literalistically, it's like, it's, we're not meant to picture this like a, a sheep in a tuxedo at the front of the aisle, right? This is, it's not the idea. And, but this is how the metaphors continue all the way to the end of the book. Like, in chapter 21, we read, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. There's no temple in eternity. Why? Because the temple is the lamb, Meant to, we're not meant to picture a sheep with doors and sacrifices happening inside of it. There's no need for the sun because the lamp of the people of God for all eternity is the lamb, the text tells us. Again, it's not like a, 
a, a lamb light with a little, you know, you turn it on and it glows. That's not what we're meant to picture. It's not a crude over-literalism. Why, why then? Why the mixing of metaphors? Here's why. The point is to tell us over and over again that the one who gave himself for us, the one who was led to slaughter, the lamb, right? Drawing on these images of the Old Testament, the one who was led to slaughter, the one who stood in our place, whose blood was shed for us that we might be atoned and forgiven. He has now saved us and secured us for all eternity. In other words, God doesn't just scorch the earth of wickedness and give us the opportunity to start over because that would just lead to more wickedness, right? What did we see in Genesis chapter 6? The world is destroyed. We start over with Noah and his family and they sin immediately. Human sin has not been dealt with, but rather he rids the earth of wickedness so that we might have him for all eternity. So that he might do something different, right? Okay, but he doesn't just, that, that brings us to the third, to our third contrast. Because he doesn't just save us. He also sanctifies us. Remember, the world are those who are unrepentant, even into eternity. Third contrast. The world are those who are unrepentant, even into eternity. The people of God are sanctified to become like him. The world are unrepentant, even, even into eternity, they're unrepentant. They continue to be unrepentant. The people of God are sanctified to become more like him, something that begins now and is perfected in glory. That's our third contrast. Look at, look at the rest of verse 8. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So, so okay, beginning of verse 8, it was granted that the bride, the people of God, the wife of the lamb, to clothe herself with fine linen... Bright and pure. And then John, as he does in Revelation sometimes, immediately tells us what that symbolizes. He says, the fine linen symbolizes the righteous deeds of the saints, of those who follow Christ. Now, here's what this doesn't mean. And it's really important because it, if, we, if we try to make it mean this, we undermine the point of the text. We undermine everything that we're called to do in this text. Okay, It doesn't mean that God's people are somehow saved on the basis of our own work. It doesn't mean that God's people avoided judgment because they were so good and holy on their own merit. While those earth dwellers, those who rejected Christ, were so wicked. And so because we had these good deeds, and they were lacking in their good deeds, we became the bride. That's not the contrast at all. It's not grounds for boasting about something within ourselves as believers. Which is why we can't use these texts, by the way as an excuse to deride the world around us with hatred instead of evangelism, a plea, a longing, a grief that they might come to know Christ, right? It's not grounds for boasting. So what does it mean? Well, simply put, it means, it means that if someone comes to fully trust the work of the Lamb, the work of Christ, to recognize what we just talked about, that, that their clothes are dripping with impurities, that they're spiritually bankrupt, that they have nothing on their own merit to offer a holy and perfect God. And so they cry out to God for mercy. They throw themselves on the mercy that's offered to them at the cross, believing that his sacrificial death on their behalf has actually saved them from their sin, that he bore this wrath for all eternity that the earth dwellers actually will face. This wrath that we're reading about right here, Jesus stepped into, he bore it, he faced it, uh, that on his people's behalf, they might now, those who trust in him, might now not have to face it and could instead receive eternal glory. Join him in his resurrection. 
Be given a, a union with him that's perfected in glory. Be given a new life now that goes on forever. If all of that is true of us, the text is saying, then we will live lives that demonstrate that it's true. Our lives will reflect it. Our lives will reflect what we believe about the gospel. Our lives will reflect it. It will show that the power of Christ within us, the spirit at work within us, our union with him will bring about a different kind of life than the world around us. And if our life continues to look no different from the world around us, the New Testament holds out no hope to us that we're actually saved, regardless of what we say we believe. And it does this, the spirit of God does this in us by starting out by giving us different desires than what the world desires. Fundamentally, the first desire it gives us is to defer to God even, even when we disagree, even when we don't feel like it. Right? Like our desire is for God to get what He wants. Our desire is for Him to be our authority. Right? You actually see those differences outlined in the contrast between chapters 18 and 19. Listen, listen. Listen to the wailings of the lament of the world when Babylon's destroyed. Starting in verse 16. I've read this already, but let's read it again. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in what? In fine linen. So the people of the world are saying that the great city was, was also clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. Babylon was also said... By the earth dwellers, the people of the world, those who rejected Christ, to be clothed in a fine linen. But what it's describing here is not good deeds, but the opposite. It's the clothing of the destructive harlot that we saw in chapter 17. They're adorned in the same way. The prostitute riding the beast. The clothing of seduction as Babylon worked overtime to win the desires of people. Do you see this? Like, what kinds of things are, are the people of the world grieving about in chapter 18? What kind of losses? A desire for status. A desire for wealth. A desire for their own fame. A desire to be their own Lord and Savior. To call the shots of their own life. To do what they want. To do whatever they want. And we see how all that works out for them. Because Babylon is destroyed. The fine linen of seduction is laid waste in a single hour. But the pure linen of new life. The new heart the new desires of the saints that gives way to good deeds, that goes on for all eternity. We wear it for all eternity. They desire what God desires. Listen, listen. On this side of eternity, the people of God don't trust their heart. They see it as an unreliable guide. And where their heart and God's heart conflict, where their desire and God's desires conflict, where what they want and what God wants look different, they die to self and live to Christ. They take up their cross and follow him. There's a taking up of the cross. There's a dying to self, a dying to self. For those who are part of the world system, however, where their heart and God's heart conflict, where their desires, their desires and God's desires conflict, where what they want and what God wants looks different, where what God says now starts to part from what they say about how things should be, they just, they just do what they want. They choose what they want. See, this is the modern deconstruction movement. People deconstruct their faith in such a way that now gives them a very convenient way to not have to die to themselves any longer. Like, I have a really hard time understanding in what sense the deconstruction movement, as I've come to see its fruit, takes up its cross. The idea of taking up your cross is traumatic. 
The idea of dying to self? Well, that's just trauma. So they don't have to feel conflicted. They just do what they want. They don't have to wrestle with a God who sees things differently from them or who calls them to a different life from the world. There's no taking up your cross. Anytime you see a cross, you don't have to touch it. I can deconstruct and do what I want. But, but even more for our purposes, listen, this is why it's so important that we get the gospel right. In other words, listen, if we're preaching a gospel that comes with implications, right? A gospel at the heart of the scriptures. And we're preaching a gospel that it does. It comes with it certain implications, a certain way of living that should be showing up in our daily lives. It's not those things that save us. Those things aren't the gospel. But if we really believe this gospel of grace, it should be showing up in the way that we worship. It should be showing up in the way that we defer to God over to ourselves and die to self. We should be looking more and more like him. Like our faith, our Christianity, should reflect more and more of the word, not more and more of the world. And if what we find is that we're receiving more and more of the world's accolades with, when we explain our Christianity, more and more pats on the back from the world around us, when I explain away more and more of the word, then man, we're in a whole lot of trouble But listen, that trouble is a sign that we're not really believing the gospel. See, like, when we make the gospel something that saves but has no implications that come along with it, that's not really good news because it offers cheap transaction and no transformation. It's like the idea that the gospel is some kind of vaccine and now I can go back to living however I want to live. But listen, if you live just like the rest of the world, what have we seen? The New Testament holds out no hope for you that you are actually saved regardless of what you say you believe. So you're not really believing a gospel cheap transaction with no transformation, there are, listen to me, there are areas of our lives that the good news of the cross of Christ immediately speaks into with implications on a whole host of issues. Whole host of issues to the degree that we will actually, that listen, if we actually believe the gospel that we preach, it will bring about good deeds. It will will transform us in specific ways. It has to. But listen to me, when we make the implications of the gospel the gospel itself? That is to say, uh, look, when, when the good deeds that need to be done in a certain cultural situation, caring for the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, for instance, when the good deed itself is stated as the gospel, we only heap more and more law upon ourselves, we'll never be able to see the kind of transformation the gospel holds out to us, and we, we end up working against ourselves. We don't get what, what we claim we desire. And so these contrasts between a world that laments and wails and weeps when the wicked culture around us is finally destroyed, and God's people who rejoice in His judgment, a world order that's inevitably destroyed versus God's people who are mercifully saved, a world order that's unrepentant even into eternity, versus God's people who are sanctified to become more like Him. We ask the question, to whom do we belong? To whom do we give our allegiance? Do we trust God enough to rejoice in his judgments, see them as good? Do we long for eternity with him? Or does the idea of the world as we know it coming to an end kind of bum us out? Like, I don't come back today, it's Super Bowl Sunday. I don't judge the earth tomorrow, it's Valentine's Day. Can we just, let's get past some of the things that that I want, right? Like, does the idea of this world coming to an end the way that it is kind of just bum us out. 
Are we willing to give God what he wants, to give him the glory, or do we just want what we want? These are important questions, but even more important and central to answering them is, how is it possible to become those who are characterized as those who defer to God, who give him authority? How? How do we do that? What, by working up enough faith and strength? Well, this is where we need to see the source, and that's exactly how this section of text closes, verses 9 and 10. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who in who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you, and you are brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Okay, do you see this? The angel who shows him the vision says, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. What a glorious truth for John to hear. Invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then he says, these are the true words of God. And John's response in seeing the servant of God, the one who comes along with God, the one who proclaims the good news of Christ, this implication of the gospel in front of him, is to actually bow to the implication, to that which serves Christ and comes with him, rather than to Christ himself. He falls down at his feet to worship this gospel implication of this angel standing before him rather than Christ, and listen to the angel's reply. You must not do that. You don't worship anything but Christ, right? You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold out the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And then John adds, and here's the key, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, here we have the preeminence of Christ in his word. Here we have what all of the scriptures point us to. Here we see why we must have the centrality of Jesus in our preaching, in our teaching, in our worship, in our prayers in our encouragements to one another, in our rebukes, in our church discipline, in all of it, is the centrality of Christ. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, prophecy, words from God himself that have been inspired by the Holy Spirit, will always focus our hearts on the testimony of Christ, the testimony given by Jesus, the testimony about him, about who he is and what he's done, that we might be reconciled to God. The same testimony of Jesus that John already started out in Revelation saying is the center of his writings. Reminds me of what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians when he says, No one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. In other words, the primary role of the Spirit of God is to show us Christ. And he primarily does this through his word that we might know what the gospel is to save us from our sin and how that gospel works within us to make us more and more into his likeness and bring about the kind of life that is pleasing to God. And to err on either one of those points is to bring us to destruction. And this is precisely why Jesus instituted ordinances for his church as a means of regularly declaring the gospel to one another. Both the gospel, by the way, and its implications. That Jesus' body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. He stood in your place, but but now you're in union with him. He goes with you, he strengthens you, and he makes following him possible even in this world. And so now we pray as we come to the table, as we hear the gospel that we might believe, repent, become more like Christ, and live according to the gospel for all eternity. Lord, As we come to the table now, we pray that you would bring conviction of sin. Allow us not to touch the elements until we deal with the sin 
at the core of our hearts, Lord. Pray, Lord, that you'd be working within us through your grace and mercy to make us more like you. To proclaim a gospel that the world might hear and believe and trust. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.